Welcome to another episode of Kitchen Sink. This is uh, episode number 10 now. My goodness, where is where is that time gone? I'm recording this on a Sunday afternoon. I have some beautiful beef ribs in the oven as I speak, so I'm looking forward to those later on. Um, I marinated them overnight, uh, a little bit of garlic and some raz and al-hanout, and uh, I've just popped them in with some onions and garlic and and a little bit of, of, of red wine. So let's see how that, that turns out in the next couple of hours. And in the meantime, I thought I'll just uh, share some thoughts with you about what's been happening this week, what's been in the news. And uh, actually, I've had a really busy week in the sense of uh, work-wise, lots going on, uh, a lot of projects, just trying to trying to bring them to conclusion, you know, as as usual, and, and make sure that you clear your desk in readiness for the, the Christmas period ahead. So, um, and I, I'm with the weather being the way it was, and I think it was, uh, which day of the week? Wednesday was it when it was absolutely rained all day, and I remember I left the office at about 6.30. I take the Oxford Tube, and anyone who follows me on uh, Twitter or maybe on Facebook would have seen it took four and a half hours to get home, which... Uh, is not one of the joys of uh, of commuting. It took one hour to get from just Marble Arch to uh, to Shepherd's Bush, so yeah, very frustrating. Uh, but saying that, it was also there was some really good highlights in my week. Um, last last week's podcast, I mentioned I was recording on the Saturday morning because I was due to be going out for Sunday lunch, which we did. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Brasserie Blanc later on. Um, And then later in the week, uh, um, very, very, very nice event, which I I got to spend some time with some of my social media pals. And it was on Thursday, and it was uh, in a place called the Lamb's Tavern Pub um, on the 184th anniversary of Young's uh, Brewery. And I only know that because they had a live band playing and uh, lots of very, very nice ales being, being enjoyed by the crowd there. But I was there for social media. And I was there for a specific reason. It was it was uh, an event organised by a young lady by the name of Digital Blonde. She goes by the name on Twitter of at Digital Blonde. That's Karen Fuel, and she was organising this event uh, during Social Media Week um, based on food emotions and emojis. And basically, she's done some research around uh, the use of emojis and what it what what sort of what that means for marketing of food, um, you know, and and really just to get people around and discuss it and think about it and and put some some sense to it. Um, very very enjoyable uh, debate. A uh, couple of chefs there, including Russell Bateman, who is the current national chef of the year. In fact, one of the points that was made. Um, one of the chefs said something like, I love it when my food is being photographed in the restaurant um, and it gets shared on Instagram and so on and, and, and Facebook and Twitter. Um, it really helps to, to drive engagement around my brand. Whereas another chef on the panel said, I thoroughly dislike it when people take photographs because it um, it means that we have to, you know, the, the food isn't enjoyed as much. We have to put extra staff in place to take the photographs of people people while they're all together and sort of had a more negative spin on it. Now, I don't know what the right answer is. Um, one of the points I would make, because one of the, one of the points he made was, 
that people taking a photograph of the dish, the lighting isn't right, maybe the dish is half eaten, they're sharing the, the photograph and it doesn't show them in the best of light. I would say, and I did put a, a remark on Twitter in, in response to that, to say that those are the kind of photographs that I look for when I'm when I'm doing a little uh, research into where to eat. And if I see some um, some people who are sharing photographs that are not in the best light, but saying really nice things about the quality of the food, the taste of the food, the flavour, the atmosphere, and so on, then I know that I can go along and make my own mind up about what that dish should be like. But it was a very interesting uh, debate. A couple of interesting stats that were shared um, in in uh, in some of the handouts, and I'm going to share on the show notes um, a slide share of these handouts so you can see some of this research for yourself. But around who uses emojis, for example, uh, 46% of adults uh, in the UK said, I, well, they basically... Re- asked 2,000 UK adults uh, who who declare that they use emojis to, to give a little insight and 46% of those people said I sometimes use them uh, versus 32% who says I use them almost all of the time. Um, conversely on the other side of the coin 6.8% said I rarely use them uh, versus uh, 14.8, well almost 15% who said they use them occasionally. And interestingly 40% of female adults say they use emojis all the time. So I thought that was quite interesting. And in terms of most used emoji, uh, 62% of people use the smiley face one the most. However, uh, and this is a good however, uh, the number of, he says, just trying to read the notes here, the number of emojis used by 18 to 24-year-olds is tears of joy. Uh, for adults over 25 it's the smiley face so the tears of joy and that's one that I I like to use whenever I I throw a little bit of a joke in or whatever I put the tears of joy and maybe a crying one as a way of highlighting that I that I am joking about a a point and they don't take it too seriously so it was a a really nice event there was a guy there called Mervyn Dinen who um, anyone in HR should be following uh, his blogs following what he's doing a very 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 uh, gifted writer uh, and and uh, nicely opinionated, and I like that about him because he he has a lot to say on the on lots of topics and uh, very 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 knowledgeable guy around HR. So it was great to catch up with Mervyn uh, and and talk about stuff uh, just just in the whole space of social media, which um, I, I'm sure many of you are aware that I I used to run the social media um, element of Baxter Stories brand communications in my previous role but you know whether or not I'm doing it as a job I love doing it um, and I I seem to spend every waking hour um, beyond and outside of my work um, just keeping an eye on what's happening on LinkedIn Twitter or Facebook so that was uh, that was me during the week Um, I have to say as I said it was uh, a fabulously busy uh, week uh, but very productive and certainly uh, to talk about emojis and emotions around food that's uh, that was just the icing on the cake for me. So what's been happening in the news this week? Well, lots and lots of uh, various stories bubbling up. And uh, as I said, we we seem to keep coming back to a a number of themes, uh, chefs and the shortage of them, uh, minimum wage and how to retain people and and into the the sector. And once again, um, another article here uh, entitled Why the Chef Shortage could change the way we eat. So according to Tony Naylor in the uh, in the Guardian, 
Guardian, he, he basically says, kitchens have always had a high turnover of staff, but inflated salaries, lack of skills and unrealistic expectations are all to blame for a growing crisis in the catering industry. It's having an effect on what's served up to us. Um, and it's a very interesting spin on on not just the, highlighting that there is a shortage of chefs, uh, but what that actually means for us as customers. So, for example, just on the topic of shortage of chefs, it says it's not just high-end dining rooms that are struggling to fill vacancies. New restaurants are opening at an unprecedented rate, but the Skills Development Agency People First reports that 51% of catering college have seen enrolments drop in an industry which by 2020 will need a predicted 11,000 new chefs. Um, And that was a story that we highlighted a a few weeks ago. Um, And of course it goes on to say the Bangladesh Bangladesh Caterers Association is also for subtly different reasons saying that they are uh, um, saying that there will be a owners face a, a shortage due to not being able to bring in chefs from outside the EU. So what does that mean for consumers? Um, well, <laughs> This is where it kind of gets a little bit interesting. Let me have a look here. It says, This lack of great chefs and the pressure to pay them higher wages is already changing the way we eat. Riskier restaurant concepts that rely on the original creative cooking of a team with a high repertoire of kitchen skills are being sidelined in favour of, say, high-end, high-spend steakhouses or high-volume, fast-casual restaurants, which generate plenty of service charge to help boost wages. And these serve uh, limited menus of conveyor belt dishes such as burgers, hot dogs, fried chicken, etc. They're easy to cook. Uh, so, and then it cites burger chains such as Byron, Meat Liquor, and Burger and Lobster are not just growing because they are popular, but because they are relatively easy to staff. As are those Hawksmoor-esque steak restaurants that have popped up everywhere. Um, so I think that is a very interesting take. Is that part of the reason why these restaurants um, are, are popping up all over the UK? Um, obviously in London to begin with and then they, they branch out. Maybe so. Um I never really looked at it in that way. Although saying that, when I put when I when I think back to the, you know, sixteen years ago, we had our own restaurant, uh, flagship restaurant, Kilroy's of Kathmandu, and when we saw that an empty premises had come up in the centre of the tourist hub Thamel in, uh, you know, and literally only five minutes walk around the corner, I remember saying to myself, I needed to put a concept in there that would run, but wouldn't necessarily require me physically to be there. And the reason for that was on a busy Saturday night or, or, or any night of the week during the tourist season, um, I would definitely have to be standing at the hot plate at Kilroy's making sure that food was on point. And what I didn't want was to open a restaurant that required the same thing of me uh, around the corner. So we looked at various options, whether we do pizza, whether we do Indian food, and we decided that a steakhouse was going to be one of those things where if we got the right uh, um, source, the right supply of, of meat, and we got the recipes right and the training right um, and put the right sort of team in place that could run that then there was every chance that that restaurant could do could do relatively well and it was also going to be close enough that we could keep an eye on um, but not but, but at the same time not compete directly for the same customers on the same night and sure enough it it, it worked from from day one almost um, the steakhouse literally five minutes walk down the street complemented our offer and very often what we found was that people came to us for for a meal first night back from a trek for example or, or first night in 
Kathmandu. And once they understood we had a, a steakhouse round the corner, that was that was their choice for the second night. Um, or they would save that for their first night back from the trek, uh, where they've had a you know a week, ten days of vegetarian food, and then they really, in fact, many 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 tourists will say to us, and they still say it, all they can think about on that trek um, as they munch through their, their their noodles and whatever is uh, the big juicy sizzling steak and chips when they when they get back to Kathmandu. So I can understand why uh, these burgers, hot dogs, fried chicken kind of joints are popping up. Um, but is it driven by the shortage of chefs or is it driven by the fact that you can control your costs? Uh, you can get a high turnover of people uh, through your restaurant. And at the end of the day, if you get the offer right, it can be a, a license to print money. Um, I think there's an argument for, for both points of view there. Um, and then in terms of higher minimum wage, uh, because actually in that same story, it, it mentions, and I thought this was an interesting thing, while the industry mulls over solutions, chefs' wages are rising to unheard of levels. David Strauss, who runs Goodman's Steak Restaurants, um, whose head chefs can earn between 60 and £70,000 a year, and then in brackets it says, a rival recently tried to poach a Goodman chef with a package worth £125,000. So... Um, um, it just goes to to show you that the that the money is there um, if you can stick with it and um, if if you can be clever enough to put yourself in the right place at the right time. Although he also goes on to say that um, good chefs are a precious commodity. You need that mentally stable, hardworking, creative person, and there just aren't that many, says Strauss. You've got some massively skilled chefs who are fundamentally fra- flawed, be it alcohol, drugs, or gambling. They can put in three great months and suddenly melt down. Eight out of ten of them are just narcissistic, egotistical. It's part of the business. So what he's saying is that eight out eight out of ten of the chefs that he's come across uh, are not, you know, leadership material. So when you get the one or two who are, then you pay them very, very well and make sure that you keep them. And on that note, I have a, a little um, resource to share with you at the end of this show on uh, on in the management tip uh, around that uh, whole point about. Um, key tactics on on helping to keep your staff. So, as I said, that that was something about the very higher end of the the wage market. Um, at the lower end of the wage market, the there's a the headline here, um, and this is in 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 Reuters, higher UK minimum wage to hit hospitality hardest. Um, British businesses in the hospitality, retail, and social care sectors are likely to be challenged by a planned rise in the minimum wage, and will need to find ways to boost productivity an economic think tank said on Tuesday. So basically this uh, think tank known as the Resolution Foundation, which researches low pay, said that the finance minister, George Osborne's plan to raise the hourly minimum wage to £9 by 2020 from its current £6.50 could lead to lower hiring and profits and higher prices. Uh, Well, you know, I think that's that's inevitable in 2020 there's going to be higher prices no matter what happens um and yeah i think i think that when you say lower profits that doesn't necessarily uh 
some of these very, 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 very big uh, conglomerates are pulling in hundreds of millions of pounds in profit every year. And maybe there's a little bit of room for a few extra uh, uh, couple of pounds or whatever it is per hour for the for the lowest paid. And maybe uh, there might be a little bit of a squeeze uh, on some of that more senior level pay. That's one way that I would look at it. And, and the reason I say all of that is because um, another very interesting headline that that came up this this uh, last week and i have to say i mentioned little last week um if you remember and if you if you if you tuned in uh, i mentioned that little have sponsored a six figure um deal with mumsnet to to advertise on the mumsnet forum and you know i i thought to myself they really are making waves in terms of how they're going about business and this week they have gone one step further i didn't think they could surprise me like this but this is quite something it says and this again was a story um in the international business times little boosts salaries above living wage from october in move that will cost the supermarket 9 million pounds so uh this is an amazing story i mean little has an announced it will increase the minimum wage it pays to its employer to its employees uh, it says employers here to employees to eight pounds 20 an hour a move that will cost the german discount supermarket over nine million pounds the supermarket revealed that figure will come into play across the uk from first of october with staff in its london branches earning nine pounds 35 an hour well before the national living wage will be compulsory to introduce. So again, that is quite an incredible move um, by Lidl. And I think that it has caught uh, one or two, especially the Tesco's and uh, uh, Sainsbury's, on the back foot um, because they are really struggling with uh, profits and profit warnings and so on at the moment. And some of that is down to... um, some some very dodgy kind of uh, uh, you know bookwork maybe going on over the last few years, and it's all caught up with him uh, just at a point when uh, the the chancellor has decided he's going to stick this in, um, and little of grasp and nettle and and got ahead of the curve on it. Um, that story, and by the way, that as I said, it's 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 in that. Um, uh, International Business Times. So I'm going to share that with you. But what I thought, just often at the bottom of the story, there'll be a couple of links in relation to that. And here it says more about the living wage, and there's four or five links to that. And I think it's interesting to see how different companies are, are you know, dealing with this, the fallout of 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 a minimum wage. For example, our old favourite, J.D. Weatherspoon, Tim Martin hits out at living wage and taxes again as profits fall 25%. So that's one headline. Another headline, Next, uh, the, 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 the clothes retailer, Next, will increase prices to adapt to George Osborne's new living wage plans. Um, and then the next headline here that's linked to this same story, sales rise again as Costa and Premier Inn own uh, owner Whitbread adopts the living wage. So uh, they're actually seeing an increase in sales as they adopt the living wage. And IKEA, finally, another another little story here, IKEA to pay more than the living wage to all 9,000 UK workers. So there you go. Different companies are approaching it in a different way. And in fact, I, I thought I'll click on that link around the um, the Costa Premier Inn one because I was curious to see um, what what have they done and what are they doing about this as they um, as they adopt the living wage. And one of the key uh, phrases here that I saw, which I thought was quite good, so. Um, 
just want to see who's making this this uh, statement. Uh, we are continuing to deliver our ambitious organic uh, growth plans with another good quarter, Chief Executive Andy Harrison said. Premier Inn grew total sales by 11.6%, with rooms available growing by 7.9%, total rev power growing by 3.9%, and occupancy remaining high at 87%. That's quite an astounding uh, occupancy there across Premier Inn. So just scrolling down here, I can see that he says, um, we are developing plans to adopt the recently announced national living wage, he told investors. We shall mitigate this substantial cost increase over time with a combination of productivity improvements boosted by investment in systems and training, efficiency savings and some selective price increases. So it sounds to me like they're boxing clever. Uh, efficiency savings means they're going to they're gonna be a little bit leaner in running their business. Um, selective price increases, so charge a little bit more where people are willing to pay for it. Um, and, you know, things such as uh, investment in systems and training. And I can tell you that... Uh, investment in training is going to be the key one over the over the next uh, few years to to really help businesses um survive this this relentless um you know change that's coming now whether it's from from government uh with policies such as this or whether it's from the disruptors uh and uh, through new technologies so um yeah that's that's just goes to show you uh rather than whinging as uh about the whole thing somebody's just getting on and doing it so in terms of um you know what are you doing to to retain people? What are you doing to to keep people in your business? Um, and as I said at the end of the show, I'm going to share something with you. But uh, there's two competitions uh, which are aimed specifically at um, front of house service, which are worth highlighting here. The first one is, of course, the Gold Service Scholarship, and this uh, is something very close to my heart. And the reason for that is because um, um, Alistair Story, as uh, chairman of WSH, decided uh, decided a, a number of uh, years ago, about three, four years ago, that he wanted to put something back into the um, into the the industry that that has um, you know he's done very well in the industry, and he felt that you know chefs have always got the limelight uh, over the years, and and perhaps some of that limelight should be shared with our front of house colleagues. So he put some considerable investment um, into a little thing called the um, Gold Service Scholarship, uh, along with um, a team of trustees. And I have to say, Silvano Geraldin and John Davey and uh, Edward Griffiths, you know, there's, there's a stellar uh, list of names that are at the helm of this. And basically, this is a competition that is open to anyone who works in front of house service. And I can't stress enough that this is not... This is absolutely not an elitist uh, uh, competition aimed at um, two and three star Michelin restaurants uh, where they can take home the prize every year. In fact, quite the opposite. And the reason I, I, I know quite a lot about this is because I was running the, as part of my role previously, was helping to to, to sort of run the social media element of this over the, the past 12 months before I, I, I left uh, Baxter's story. So I was at every single event uh, that these young people were were taking part in as they tried to win that uh, that pr- that fabulous prize and i can tell you now that the 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 trustees 
and supporters of Gold Service Scholarship are not looking for uh, the most uh, talented waiter because it's not as it's yes they are looking for somebody who has the skills but they're looking for the package the all round package they're looking for the passion that you might have they're looking for somebody who'll be an ambassador not just for Gold Gold Service Scholarship but an ambassador for the industry going forward so one or two of the um, tasks that they have to do um, for example one of them might be a table that's set up uh, laid up for four people and there'll be four or five intentional mistakes and they have to spot those mistakes um, you know maybe a butter knife is turned around the wrong way or there might be a spoon missing and so on so that's quite a straightforward one but then there's another one for example where two people are paired up together so so two people who have never worked together before uh, they sit down together in front of two judges uh, a, a deck of specially designed cards are shuffled and three are dealt out and the cards are turned over and on them is three separate scenarios that might happen in a restaurant at a given time uh, for example I, I don't know a, a glass of wine falls on the floor um, somebody faints uh, you know and maybe uh, I don't know somebody complains about being overcharged or something like that Just three things happen at the same time so the object of the exercise is to see how the two people who've never worked together figure out the and prioritize which bits get done first and how would you deal with that scenario. Now, there's no right answer. There's no sort of golden path of do this, do that. It's really about figuring out are they do they work well as a team? Uh, are they are they diplomatic? Uh, are they thinking about the wider aspects of the business as well as what's happening in the moment, etc. And I think that that's a very very interesting challenge. And, you know, something somebody might be sitting there who has and and does come from a two star or three star Michelin restaurant. But you know what? A lot of these very, very well known restaurants run like clockwork. So they just follow. They come in. They do as they're told all day long. And actually at the very junior, more junior level, they're, they're not paid to think for themselves, they're paid to just follow instructions, whereas this is asking people to really think for themselves. So what I would say to you is uh, that anybody who is, you know, I think it's uh, between, let me have a look here, it's between, uh, the to enter the scholarship, you must be employed full-time in food and beverage service in any sector of the industry within the United Kingdom. Entrants must have reached their 22nd birthday on or after the 1st of September 2015, but not be older than 28 on the 30th of September 2015. Now, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, entries are open until, uh, is it the 30th of this month? I'm, I, I think so. But certainly, I would say over the next few days, um, you know, if you have somebody in your team within your hotel, your restaurant, or you know somebody, or um, you have a niece or a nephew who works in the industry as a waiter or a waitress, uh, and it doesn't matter if it's if it's within a coffee shop, whether it's a pizza place, whether it's a, a high end hotel. I would ask them to enter this because the prize at the end is quite incredible. And not only that, if you reach the finals, um, just the finals and don't win the prize, that seven or eight people are all all get to jointly go to uh, the Champagne District to enjoy uh, and learn about uh, the making of Champagne. And they get to go to uh, some key dinners and events and become ambassadors for the industry over the next 12 months. So actually, um, just getting into the top seven or eight um, uh, as a finalist, 
catalyst is is still worth it. The other competition which uh, is running at the moment is the UK Restaurant Manager of the Year. And I have to tell you once again, this is run by the Academy of Food and Wine Service. And it's one of those, uh, again, you would say to yourself, well, that's again for, you know, you must be working at Le Manoir or the Waterside Inn, otherwise you have no chance. Actually, it's quite the contrary. Um, Last year's winner uh, was Alper Zan uh, of Café Rouge in Cheshire Oaks. Um, and he, he well, you know, it, it really says a lot, doesn't it, when somebody from Café Rouge wins Restaurant Manager of the Year. And the year before that was um, a former colleague of mine in Baxter's story, Janine Swales, who uh, is uh, General Manager at uh, Tottenham Hotspur Training Ground, um, which, you know, speaks to... It's quite incredible that you have somebody from Contract Catering wins it in 2013 and then you have somebody from Café Rouge who won it uh, uh, last year. So, you know, I would recommend that, uh, again, if you are in the restaurant uh, hotel sector and you are running a restaurant um, or if you know somebody, you have a colleague or if you're if you're a general manager or anyone who's senior leadership and you want to uh, to to help and develop and mentor some somebody within your team, then there's no better way than encouraging them to to enter uh, one of these two uh, competitions, because it certainly helps to bring out the best in them. And if they do well, well, I can only say that it's good for for everybody all round. Now, um, let me have a look here. Um, We talked about uh, living wage and another story that um, has been a big story over the last few weeks in this country especially has been around tipping and the tipping scandal. Um, And I've I've found a story which um, it comes out of New York, um, out of um, eater.com and it says Tom Caliccio eliminates tipping during Kraft's lunch service. Dinner could follow. Now, to be fair, um, this is this because I I'm not familiar with lots and lots of personalities in America or the TV shows in America. You know, I I'm sort of I read this with interest. Um, not so much about, about the names or the places or whatever, but it goes into real detail around how the tipping, the whole thing around tipping works in America. Um, So it says Tom Caliccio, the New Jersey native who co-founded Gramercy Tavern with Danny Meyer before skyrocketing to fame as head judge of Bravo TV's Top Chef, has become the latest culinary figure to take on one of America's most deeply ingrained dining customs, tipping. Um, When Caliccio's flagship craft debuts its lunch service today so this was on the um, 15th of september patrons will see a note at the bottom of the menu stating that prices are inclusive of service caliccio won't prevent customers who want to leave cash tips from doing so but he'll remove the tip line from credit card checks no additional surcharges aside from tax will appear on the bill now i'm Saving the link uh, to my show notes, but I've got to tell you, there's a huge amount of information in this story, um, which which is quite, uh, you know, really, really intriguing for somebody who uh, isn't in the uh, in America and kind of doesn't fully appreciate how integral the, the whole service charge is uh, to, to salaries over there. Uh, so, for example, this is no small matter. 
Virtually every member of New York's restaurant community is scrambling to deal with the higher cost of doing business in the state. The full minimum, which went up by 75 cents to 8.75 in January, will rise again to $9 by the new year. Uh, the new fast food minimum, in turn, will rise to $10.50, while the tipped minimum, which is what waiters earn before gratuities, will go up by $2.50 to $7.50. Labour costs should increase even more if New York adopts Governor Andrew Cuomo's plan to raise the full minimum to $15 for all workers, a policy that might include an an elimination of the lower minimum for tipped workers. So there's a whole raft of different rates uh, there, according to whether you're in a fast food joint or in a restaurant, etc. So, like I said, a very, very complicated system, and that article uh, just helps to to set out the case of what that looks like. So it just goes to show you uh, that... um, this seems to be a quite a quite an issue around the world. Um, you know, we look we looked at uh, Australia a couple of weeks ago, and how um, people who work even in retail and the most basic jobs are earning anything up to, you know, f- what was it twenty twenty five pounds an hour or something on on a Sunday? It was ridiculous, uh, and for that reason, restaurants don't even open on a Sunday. So. Uh, I'm going to share that in the show notes for you because I do think that that is something worth worth having a read of uh, just to get a more rounded knowledge of what tips look like around the world. Now, another little story that I saw, and this was in The Observer, um, and this is somebody that I had heard of uh, but wasn't really uh, too familiar with. The question is begged uh, by Ed Cumming. Who is Clark and Well Boy, London's food foodie superhero? So um, Ed Cumming meets the faceless food critic whose mouth-watering pictures guide the great and the good. Um, And it opens here. The first line says, You might have seen him, but you probably wouldn't have noticed him. Snapping away in the corner of a new restaurant, making sure there's enough natural light falling on his starter. He's the anonymous, faceless young man who communicates almost entirely in photographs and hashtags, and he has quickly become one of the capital's most trusted critics. Few know his name. For tens of thousands of us, he is simply Clarkenwell Boy. He might not be the superhero London's overblown foodie scene needs, but he's the one it deserves right now. Um, And I think what's very, very interesting about this particular food critic is that he does all of his talking through pictures, uh, or certainly the most of it. Clarkenwell Boy, EC1, as he's known to his 110,000 Instagram followers, and Clarkenwell underscore boy to his... 10,000 strong uh, army of Twitter followers is the epitome of the 21st century social media star. So I'm going to share the link uh, there because uh, aside from being a very interesting story, um, you know, I think it's also something that uh, the photographs itself are, are stunning. Um, and I think there was one really, really nice little quote. Uh, Jamie Oliver uh, has said, I watch his pictures with total jealousy every week. For Nigella Lawson, he is essential. Even our own Nigel Slater says he looks him up to know where to go. So uh, Clarkenwell Boy uh, is your inside tip if you want to find out what the latest foodie fashions are in London before you book that table. And talking about booking that table, um, here's a little special offer. Well, I say a special offer. It's a, it's a, um, a little event that is happening very close to home here in Oxfordshire at Blenheim Palace. You know, Blenheim Palace is just, for me, what, eight-minute, ten-minute drive outside of Oxford, and it's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, uh, you know, stately home 
And we we did have the annual ticket and we would go there very often for picnics because the, the, the grounds there were designed by uh, Capability Brown. And, you know, to, to have a picnic by the by the lake there is just amazing. Um, but, of course, the, the catering is run by uh, Circe's, which was, um, if you remember, into 2014 was bought by the WSH group. Again, back, back to the story, Alistair's story and, and, and his team. Um, so they've got the Blenheim. Blenheim Palace Champagne Afternoon Tea in the Orangery and that's uh, Sunday the 4th of October and the price is £45 um, but if I'm not mistaken that includes uh, let me have a look do, do, do. Included in the price are the Palace uh, Park and Gardens ticket, which can be exchanged on the day to an annual pass, affording you the ability to visit as many times in a year at no extra cost. This fantastic deal will allow you to revisit the palace to review the exciting Lawrence Weiner art exhibition within a realm of distance, which opens to the public in mid-October. So, uh, you know, for £45, you can enjoy a a gorgeous, uh, delicious... um, Afternoon tea with uh, Laurent Perrier Rosé Champagne. And then you can uh, take a walk around the gardens afterwards to walk off some of those fabulous calories that you've just taken in. And then you can exchange that ticket. And I have to say that is good value because uh, it, it, it does cost the best part of that just to buy the ticket anyway. And then you can use that for the rest of the year. So I'm sharing that with you because I thought that was a really, really, really good offer and something worth worth doing. So that's basically uh, lots and lots of uh, news. Um, I had a link that I wanted to share a couple of weeks ago. Um, and funny enough, I rather than share the link itself, I shared a story that was within it. And that was about the, uh, the culinary forecasts in America. But this uh, link that I'm going to share is, um, let's just think of it as resources. And this is around food waste. So I've got a couple of links to share with you in this week's show notes, show notes around uh, uh, food waste. So this one says, um, waste not, want not. Five tips to reduce food waste. And like I said, it's, a, it's an American uh, website, Foodable Web TV network um let me have a look here so there's five tips choose a champion number two measure and manage your waste number three do good by donating number four consider composting and number five put the customer first so there's there's five you know really good ways of thinking about your food waste um and that kind of gets the gets the juices flowing on how you can uh, um, reduce some of that waste. For restaurateurs who practice sustainability, the issue of food waste has become a very hot topic recently. In fact, food waste reduction, for the first time ever this year, made the list of top 10 trends in the National Restaurant Association's um, What's Hot Culinary Forecast. So that was the thing I shared with you last week. Um, however, closer to home, uh, a very, very well-known restaurateur, and this was in Hospitality and Catering News. I tell you, those guys are really on the ball. Their finger is on the pulse. Uh, Glyn Purnell's top 10 energy-saving tips. So, for example, uh, it says here, Britain's restaurant sector consumes more than £1.3 billion in energy each year and is responsible for higher carbon emissions than the state of Costa Rica. But three-quarters of restaurateurs admit they don't know how to implement Energy saving measures, new research from E.ON reveals. So the last link that I've just mentioned was all around food waste. This is around energy savings. 
Energy costs make up almost a quarter, that's 22.5% of overheads for the restaurant and catering industry, with an estimated 10% of overheads lost on wastage. And I was just scrolling down here because there was a very interesting... Yeah, restaurants in particular are in need of help with energy efficiency and cost reduction. Cash is considered a driving force for nearly 80% of restaurateurs when it comes to cutting energy bills, but 40% are motivated by ethical reasons too. With the survey showing the average restaurant generates a profit margin of 8% and the estimated energy savings of nearly 25% achievable in most restaurants, the business case is clear. Energy savings could improve profit margins by approximately 4.6%, giving the average restaurant a margin uh, of around 12.6%. So, you know, no matter what way you look at it, uh, this seems to be a no-brainer. So Glyn Purnell's top 10 energy saving tips. And basically, I mean, if I just read the first three, and I'm just the first three, I don't want to read the whole thing. When investing in a new in new equipment, don't just think of the upfront cost, but think in terms of the lifespan of a use, including factors such as preheat energy, consumption, idle energy rate usage, production capacity, operating hours and maintenance and disposal costs. Um, Number two, retrofit old equipment with high efficiency parts and accessories. And there's a little um, couple of pointers there. And number three, consult an energy consultant or a commercial kitchen designer and installation team. So there's three really good uh, tips. Um, I have to say, one of the tips here says use energy-efficient light bulbs or LEDs. And the funny thing is that, um, you know, as I said, we had a small pub in Bedfordshire um, a number of years ago. And I always remember that um, I wanted to change the light bulbs from regular ones to those uh, the new LEDs. And my dad is one of those people who doesn't like to spend money where possible. So he he was against it he said no hang on when you know when the when the light bulb goes then maybe we can replace it but the point is you can buy one of those light bulbs there for 60 80p or a pound or whatever it is whereas the new thing is costing four pounds or anyway i i had been listening to this for some time and i just decided no i've had enough i'm cha- i'm swapping them all out so i went round with a clipboard and i counted up how many bulbs i needed and yeah it was a considerable amount of money at the time i remember in comparison to just swapping out these light bulbs but i i went and bought uh, a whole range of leds various um you know, the low energy bulbs. And I went and changed them and swapped them out and put in these other ones. And I have to tell you, it was remarkable. I mean, astoundingly remarkable how quickly my my electricity bill came down. I did not realise. And to this day, I regretted that I had put up with listening to my dad for about 12 months longer than I should have uh, because it was in the hundreds of pounds. It was a huge amount of money that it came down. Um, so anybody out there, especially those pub landlords uh, who are, you know, who wouldn't dream of changing from British gas because you know, they they feel that this is the patriotic thing to do or wouldn't dream of taking out a perfectly workable, uh, perfectly uh, working light bulb um, and swap it for some newfangled thing. I can promise you, you are you may as well just take the money out of the till, get one of them lighters that you're not allowed to use uh, inside the pub anymore because you've got a smoking shelter outside and just set fire to the money. Just do that because that's what you're actually doing by leaving those old old uh, filament bulbs in the ceiling. You may as well just take the money out of the till, 
and set fire to it because you're just literally, or, or, or I'll tell you what, just put it into an envelope and just mail it to your energy supplier because that's all you're doing. You're, it's money for nothing. Um, so there you go. Going to share a couple of those links with, for you. Uh, waste Not, One Not on uh, Food Waste and Glyn Purnell's Top 10 Energy Saving Tips. Now, uh, one other little thing that just came up today uh, was a pressing engagement, what to do with a glut of apples. And this is a fabulous little uh, article by Xanthia Clay. And Xanthi, I have to say, is a big friend of the Gold Service Scholarship. She wrote a really, really super nice article uh, featuring the Gold Service Scholarship uh, last year or, or or 18 months ago. It was very good. And today, it, it is, I think it is literally today, that um, uh, we saw this uh, um, story. And I have to say what's really nice about it is she opens with, It's raining apples. I knocked on a neighbour's door last weekend to ask if I could pick some of the crop from his loaded trees. He thrust a long-handled fruit picker into my hands and pleaded, Take as many as you can. They're hitting the garage roof at the rate of one every five minutes. Um, and she goes on to say, This year, English Apples and Pears Limited, which is uh, um, have announced the, commer- the commercial... English apple harvest will reach 160,000 tonnes, the highest for 20 years. So even if you don't have access to a tree, there should be plenty of good value apples in the shops, all in impeccable condition too. And according to the EAP, each of their apples is photographed more than 50 times to check for its size, shape, colour, blemishes and other irregularities, uh, while simultaneously an infrared system is used to check the inside of each apple without penetrating the skin to ensure there are no internal defects. So that's what an apple goes through to to get to us in the shops. But if you do get the chance to, uh, if you have some apples growing yourself or somebody, a neighbour or someone gives you some apples, she, uh, Xanthi has put together a very nice list of things you can do. So apple juice to keep, apple crisps, pickled apples, apple puree, dried apple rings and apple leather believe it or not. Um, and a couple of tips on what you would, you know, the the, the best kit to, to be able to do some of those things. Um, so I thought that was a really, really nice little uh, and very seasonal uh, link to share with you on the show notes uh, around that. Now, I have to say, in terms of um, um, restaurants that we visited last week, yes, I am glad that I set aside my Sunday for uh, Sunday lunch. We took a little wander up the street uh, here in Oxford, and I'm very lucky I I live, I live right in the, almost in the centre of town here, f- a couple of minutes from the train station, five minutes from the, uh, the the main bus station where I get my coach into London. And if we take, we can either take a little walk along the canal up to Jericho or we can walk up around by Worcester College. But it's literally seven minutes walk to Brasserie Blanc in Jericho. And they've recently undergone a... Um, a refit and a very, very, very smartly appointed refit. Um, it just, it just, it's just very on point, fresh and and clean and. Um, I don't know, somehow you just feel like you're going to enjoy the occasion as you walk in. And I think that's very important. So there was, my mum came over from Bedford with a couple of friends uh, on, on the bus. That takes a couple of hours. So we were committed to this lunch and, uh, and we'd booked a little bit in advance. Uh, and, and I must tell you a funny story. So a few months previous, I think it was even last year, we were, we were out for a walk with my mum and, and uh, my wife, my daughter, and we were just walking down by the river. And I had in the fridge at home a, a, a a duck. I thought I was 
looking forward to roasting when we got back and pop that in the oven and have that for, for our evening, early evening Sunday dinner. But as we walked past, now this is going back 18 months ago, um, as we walked past Brasserie Blanc, uh, there was a sign outside that said um, Sunday lunch and there was a special offer, uh, roast beef, and I can't remember what the price was. And my mum looked at that and she said, oh, that looks really, really good. Why don't we Why don't we go in and have Sunday lunch in here? So we did. Why not? We, we decided we might just have the the duck another day um so we came in we sat down and uh we we were looking at the menu and we made our choices and then the waiter came over and we said we're going to have uh three roast beef and one something else and he said i'm very sorry uh, we've sold out of roast beef and it was about two two thirty i think it was and my mum was absolutely gutted. She was so disappointed. And she said, oh, we only came in for that. OK, fine, we'll have something else. And she ordered something else. Anyway, it turned out that uh, Monsieur Blanc himself was on a table uh, just about 15 feet away from us on another day. And I said, oh, look, I said, Mr. Blanc is over there. I said, and obviously we wouldn't do anything to interrupt his day. But uh, as a person who has bumped into him two or three times, and I've even had the, the pleasure of, of, of cooking a lunch with one of his protégés, Michael Keynes, way, way, way back in the day. Um, and that's another story for, it was, a, it was, I think, 50th birthday or something for, for Paul Levy, the food writer. And I was a young whippersnapper and uh, Michael Keynes, Haynes was there doing the main course and I was helping on the on the desserts with Anton Moserman. Um, so I, needless to say, bumped into Monsieur Blanc a few times. Anyway, he came over to our table and said, uh, how was your meal? Was everything all right? And, you know, I was just expecting to say, everything is fine. Uh, but my mum jumped in and said, well, I'm sorry, we came in for the roast beef and that was sold out. And at this point, I went beetroot red and put my head in my hand and said, I can't believe she's complaining to Mr. Blanc about this uh, roast beef. She said, I wouldn't mind, but the waitress told us that it runs out at about this time every single Sunday. And all we'd ask is if maybe you could put some more in the oven uh, so it doesn't run out. So anyway, he he, he offered his apologies and uh, uh, offered some very nice uh, ice cream to our daughter and I think a little glass of bubbly or something to my to my wife to make amends so uh, for me it was uh, one of those little embarrassing moments where my mom my mom had to had to say it and and you know to a point she was right why not absolutely that's the feedback that we restaurateurs um, have to have to you know embrace when we run our business um, I just wish that she, you know we held counsel on that so here we were in uh, Brasserie Blanc last week and we all wanted roast beef what's really really nice about this particular roast beef was it was um, it was sent out or you could order it where you could carve it carve it yourself or have somebody carve it for you at the table so because there was um six of us i think it was all together uh this beautiful joint of uh roast sirloin came out and yeah i happily said yeah i'll carve that and i stood up at the table i was cutting away and everybody's passing around all the yorkshire puddings and the roast potatoes and everything and i have to tell you the roast beef was absolutely divine it was melt in the mouth delicious and with all the trimmings so you know the 
the menu there um, for lunch was something like, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, it was something like uh, £15 or something for the main course. Um, but it was literally £2.50 for a starter if you were ordering a main course from the Sunday lunch menu. And again, it was £2.50 for a dessert if you were ordering a main course from the Sunday lunch menu. So um, we we had a fabulous, fabulous uh, Sunday lunch. And then for dessert, we went off piste and went to the classic uh, uh, desserts from the from the dessert menu. So I had chocolate souffle with pistachio ice cream. And my mum shared uh, with somebody across the table um, the... Uh, um, I'm, I'm about to say omelette norvegienne, which is known in English as baked Alaska. And that's one of the uh, specialities of the house. So we had a fabulous lunch. I recommend it to anyone. One thing I would say, though, uh, is, you know, with coats being around the corner, we had uh, uh, certainly my wife and and others around the table had a little glass of Prosecco. And the, they've, they've still got those stubbier glasses than than coat have around the corner i think that's one area that i do wish they would just invest in a, a more refined champagne glass um especially as uh monsieur blanc is from the same country as the famed uh champagne is from and i just wish that uh that there was a little bit more of a refined element for serving uh vin mousseau or, or anything similar but other than that it was a, a really good occasion so that's pretty much the uh, restaurant of our week uh, this week. In terms of um, a management tip, I did talk to you earlier on uh, about the fact that um, you know chefs are very hard to find, and I, th- I I would go one further and say good people are hard to find. So if you find um, good people and you have them in your in your business wherever and whatever that might be then you need to find ways of making sure that you develop those people and retain them so i'm going to share a link uh on my show notes and this is um within uh, Forbes magazine and it's eight key tactics for developing employees Um, and this was written by a chap called Steve Olensky um, who writes about advertising marketing media and all subgroups therein but I thought this was a really interesting article Uh, so it says in 2012 Gallup reported that only 30% of employees in the US and just 13% of employees outside of the US feel engaged with their companies. Now, just three years later, later, those figures have not improved in any significant way. Even though statistics show that it is worth a company's effort and resources to develop employees in order to retain them, there is still a gap. According to the WASP Small Business Report, and there's a link there, 56% of businesses plan on hiring in the next 12 months, while 82% plan on developing employees more. Uh, research also suggests that having an effective manager, uh, having effective managers, can improve employee engagement. Organizations rely on talented and inspiring managers that have the ability to keep employees engaged and that help staff achieve strategic imperatives. So. Um, without reading the whole article, I will just mention uh, that there are things such as, number one, create individual development plans. Number two, provide performance metrics. Number three, provide opportunities outside of the job function. Number four, give constructive feedback. Number five, remove barriers. Number six, link to a professional network. Number seven, outlay resources. Um, and number eight is set the example. So I'm going to share that. Like I said, a fabulous uh, article 
on eight key tactics for developing employees. Um, well worth a read and well worth considering, especially as we now start on the run-up to our um, Christmas period. Uh, it's time to develop the good ones and sort out the not-so-good ones, I would believe. So that's it for this week. Uh, we've touched a little bit on chef shortage and living wage and a tiny bit about uh, tipping uh, in America. And we've looked at some resources around um, you know, food waste and energy saving and even what to do with a glut of apples. Um, I would encourage you to please, please put your people forward for uh, the... the um, uh, gold service scholarship uh, in the front of house and for uh, a national restaurant manager of the year two amazingly good opportunities for people within the service uh, sector and i've as i've said time and again and i will again put the link on there um, don't forget that the government is planning to abolish the food tech A-level. Um, and I have been sharing over the last few weeks the uh, link to the petition. There are currently 3,000 signatures uh, for, for, for this petition. If it gets to 10,000, then government will respond. So please, please, please take two minutes of your day to click on the link on the show notes, which you will find, by the way, on thomaskilroy.com. Uh, just uh, beneath the um, podcast itself will be the show notes. And if you have any any thoughts around uh, anything that I've just said, then please just um, share those on the on the comment section of thomaskilroy.com or you can go to um, um, Twitter, for example, where you'll find me at my kitchen sink. That's sync as in synchronize. Or if you want to, you can connect with me on LinkedIn and maybe send me an email um, on LinkedIn where we can share your points of view, but keep your um, anonymity. So there we are. Uh, please try and click on the link with the uh, the petition uh, and see if we can we can get those numbers up. So in the meantime, this has been uh, Kitchen Sink. I'm Thomas Kilroy. And until the next time, whatever you do, make it productive and fulfilling. Thank you for listening. <laughs>